6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his teaching on the book of 2 Kings, chapters 14 through 16. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, which was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. Now, they'd overlap while Amaziah was a prisoner and so forth, but Azariah's still only 16, but that's not, not a young age in that culture. This is... I mean, it's not as young as it would seem in our culture, of course. But uh, And he built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. The, the restoration of Elath on the coast of uh, the Gulf of Aqaba is probably mentioned here because it's one of his most significant achievements. More information on Azariah will be given in the first seven verses of the chapter 15 when we get there. But... Uh, but we get this editorial comment. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel a sin. Here's a, a, a reflexive remark back to the original Jeroboam that started the northern kingdom. In other words, he started this idolatry. And like most of the, virtually all the kings that succeed him, not just in his dynasty. We're going to talk, you know, about four or five, six dynasties here before long. He said that, that the succeeding kings, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what offended God. Because they didn't depart from the cultural tradition that Jeroboam started, one of idolatry. And uh, he restored the coast of Israel from entering of Hamath under the sea of the plain, according to the word of God. Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-Hefer. Now here is an interesting um, uh, reference to the Jonah that you and I know, interestingly enough. This territorial expansion was prophesied by Jonah, it says here. It's not recorded anywhere else in the scripture, um, it's, but, it, but it helps date Jonah himself because we know what time the prophecy was given here because it's recorded here. And so this is the same Jonah that traveled to Nineveh, and we'll talk about him a little bit further. We're going to summarize three key prophets, Jonah, Amos, and Hosea, at the end of this uh, chapter. But uh, I, think it's, uh, I think it's important to back up a little bit and give you some background about Jeroboam II because he's a very, very key player. He was the fourth in the Jehu's line. Uh, he, um, the Old Testament doesn't say much about him, actually, passing rather quickly over him here for verses from 23 to 29, but in a brief mention in Chronicles chapter 5, 1 Chronicles chapter 5. But we know from archaeology that Jeroboam II was a very vital and very aggressive ruler. And his, the later reign of Jeroboam II ushers in a time of exploding prosperity for Israel. Um, he had destroyed the uh, military power of Syria and allowed him to expand his kingdom all the way to Damascus, uh, even taking over the capital of, Met, uh, of Aram, uh, as it was called in those days, Damascus. And, uh, and so because he that took advantage of all the, uh, the trade routes then, that made the northern kingdom rich. They were very, very wealthy. But the concentration of wealth also brings corruption. Heavier and heavier taxes uh, were laid on the workers. The wealthy became land-hungry, and they squeezed out the small farmers, building great estates. Most of the poor were forced to sell themselves uh, and, and raise their families as bond servants on the very lands that they previously owned. 
Even small merchants were corrupted, um, cheating with the way they weighted uh, their weights and measures. Um, and uh, this is all accelerated by the corruption of the justice system, where the, the judges took bribes from the rich, and, and this increasingly put oppression on the poor. All this comes up in great pain and suffering in, in, the, in the indictments of the prophets, all three of them, uh, well, especially uh, Amos and Hosea, but Jonah also. And uh, there's no sense of responsibility to the poor. And all of this, uh, the, uh, Amos hurls an angry charge. These people are willing to sell the needy for a pair of sandals. It was just uh, just injustice everywhere. And uh, in other words, luxury footwear meant more to them than the suffering of a fellow human being. And so religiously, economically, politically, they became an unjust society. In 2 Kings 17, when we get there, there's a couple of verses, 13, 14, somewhere. Let me just give it to you. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all the prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with my the entire law I commanded your fathers to obey that I delivered you through my servants, the prophets. But they wouldn't listen. So uh, the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up nor left nor any helper to Israel. In verse 27, okay. Um, and the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. We're going to discover that the Lord gets to the same point a hundred years later with the southern kingdom, but he doesn't blot them out because of his promise to David. But the northern kingdom didn't have that promise, so he's, you know, that was a commitment to Judah, but let's move on here. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did in his might, how he warred and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah for Israel, are they not written in the book of Chronicles, the kings of Israel? So here we have, uh, you know, that wrap-up kind of verse. Um, I might point out that when you take the territory that uh, Jeroboam uh, recovered, and uh, it made Israel the largest country on the eastern Mediterranean seacoast. And when you take the prosperity of the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom together, they approximate what Solomon had. They, they, together, they had, although uh, the, the southern kingdom is about a third the size of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is much, much larger. I didn't get time to put a map in the slides. I probably should have. Now, one reason Jeroboam II was so successful is because Damascus had been weakened by attacks from further east, namely the Assyrians. Don't confuse the Assyrians with Aram, which we call Syria typically. Sometimes even the Bible will call it Syria. Don't confuse Syria with Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were already starting to put heat on Aram, and that's why uh, Jeroboam was able to take advantage of that. And uh, he was a very his his father had been a very very shrewd military strategist, and so was he. Apparently, inherited those abilities. And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel. And Zechariah, his son, reigned in his stead. And I might mention, by the way, it's in Jeroboam's second reign that we find the prophets Amos and Hosea ministering in Israel. Both Amos and Hosea came from the southern kingdom, but were sent by God to the northern kingdom to give them, to give them God's message. And so their messages also give us further insight into the reign, what the conditions were like in the uh, under the reign of Jeroboam and so forth. In fact, uh, this is probably a good time to just take a look at the prophets uh, that went to the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom had four up till now. There's going to be four more coming. We'll talk. We'll summarize them later. 
But it's these three, Jonah, Amos, and Hosea, that are in focus in the time that we're looking at right now. Now, Jonah is widely misunderstood. We all know about Jonah. He was called to go to Nineveh, and uh, he was uh, very reluctant to go because he was a patriot. Many people don't understand his mindset. And uh, he was uh, uh, he was a patriot, and that's why he was reluctant. If you look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, it explains that Jonah was afraid that the people of Nineveh, Nineveh might heed him and repent. And he didn't want him to repent. He wanted God to wipe him out because he knew that it was ultimately Nineveh was not only an enemy of Israel, but he also knew they would ultimately be the instrument of their undoing, which they were ultimately. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And so he he, he didn't... Uh, you know, you know the story. He got, he got told him to go there, and he he went as fast as far away as he could in the other direction until God explained it to, to him a little more clearly. And then he, uh, when he finally does go there, he goes there with a reluctant message. You know, forty days and you get yours. And uh, uh, but the the amazing thing, of course, is that they did repent. And when they do repent, Jonah is in a big pout. You wonder what's chapter four for? It's a great story. Chapters one, two, and three. You get to the fourth chapter. What's it there for? Job is pouting. He's upset. He didn't want him repenting. Now he's discouraged and he's, you know, he's on a slump on a hill overlooking the city and so forth. If you're going to understand, uh, Jonah's ministry, you need to see his entire adventure as God's object lesson. Not to Nineveh, to Israel. He is showing them that if they repent, that, um, they could be saved. See, the whole point of the Nineveh story is that they repented. They did it on spec, by the way. There was no promise. Jonah didn't give me promise. Hey, if you repent, God's going to forgive you. I mean, he's going to uh, save, uh, uh, deliver you. They did it on spec, but they did. They did repent, and it, God had decreed 40 days, and they, they were ground zero. And in those 40 days, the king went down, they repent, and God spares them. The point, it's a lesson to the northern kingdom. Pay attention, guys. Northern kingdom had 200 years. And blew it. Nineveh had forty days and 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 repented. So and so, but despite the example of Nineveh, the people of Israel just wouldn't respond to the prophets. And it was their failure to repent that made judgment inevitable. Let's talk a little bit about Amos. Here's a guy that most uh, most commentators feel is very poor. He was he raised sycamore figs, which is which was not a, a, a high. Car. Economic calling, but we don't know that he might not have been a landowner doing that because he's from Judah, not from the northern kingdom. But he's generally viewed as a poor. Uh, but he certainly has a burden for the poor as he goes to the northern kingdom. He he may have been just a, a, a you know a caretaker of figs and 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 uh, caring for sheep and all that sort of thing. And uh, so he was not really in the office of a prophet, nor was he uh, the son of a prophet. He just responded to God's call. And he obviously went up north. He probably visited Bethel and Dan, saw the calves and all that. He probably walked past the great houses and saw the luxury goods on the one hand uh, in stores, outside of which the poor were uh, crouched. He must have noticed the merchants mixing chaff with the wheat that they were selling, slyly using dishonest weights and the rest of it. And he was angered by the heartlessness and the materialism. So he boldly identifies the sins for which God was about to judge the northern kingdom. And uh, I'll give you just a, uh, I didn't make up slides for these. You can just get it in Amos chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. For the, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath in verses 6 through 8 here. 
They sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines and goes on. And then in chapter 5, he continues, You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample the poor and force him to give you grain. You oppress the righteous and take bribes. You deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. And so based on all of this, uh, the little book of Amos, he he, uh, announces the sure approach of divine judgment. But see, the whole point is that uh, they should have uh, known better. Uh, Amos 5 continues, Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph, being a, Joseph being an idiom for the northern kingdom here. Well, let's talk. Well, let's just talk, take the third, one of my favorites, that's Hosea. We don't know a lot about his background. What we do know is rather heart-rendering because he was uh, called to suffer the pain of commitment to a faithless wife, a prostitute. God called him to do it, and he did. And uh, the whole experience with Hosea and his harlot uh, that he took for a wife is, is in, was intended by God to be a model of Israel and, uh, and, and uh, to reveal the meaning of religious apo- uh, apostasy. Just as Hosea's wife could not remain faithful to Hosea, uh, likewise Israel didn't remain faithful to God. And the, the model there of a marriage is, is quite vivid. And uh, the, the imagery here of sexual unfaithfulness is very appropriate because that's exactly the way idolatry is treated throughout the Scripture. Is, is virtually synonymous with uh, illicit sex and so forth. And uh, see, because most of the, these pagan um, uh, alternatives were, were very, very, uh, they were basically nature faiths, uh, all mixed up with fertility and crops and so forth, but tied to, the, to uh, sexually stimulating uh, issues. And the passions were thought to uh, help overflow, to make fertility on the earth. So there's some real... Um, obscene elements in the pagan worship. It's not just the fact, not as simple as just the fact they worship another god than God. They were uh, very, very offensive forms. So idolatry and sexual promiscuity are very linked in Hosea's day, especially. And so uh, Hosea uh, says things just, just like Amos did. There is no, unfaith- there is no faithful fa- faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, and they break all the bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. You know, one of the things, as we went through Hosea, especially chapters 4 through 14, it's disturbing to study if you take it seriously because it sounds like America. You start, but the more you read it, the more you think, boy, this is the northern kingdom, yes, but boy, does it, does the shoe fit, you know. But it's a, it's a, despite all this, God still continues to pour out his love upon Israel, the northern kingdom. And uh, Hosea deals with that. In Hosea 11, he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further he went from me. They sacrificed in the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with the cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from the, uh, their neck and bent down to feed them. God just anguished over this this uh, unruly child, as he, as he describes it. 
and I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. But see, Israel was unmoved with God's pleas. As the pain of Hosea, as the nation then fails to listen to the the uh, painful pleas of Hosea on the one hand, or the angry denunciations of Amos. And the prophet spoke, but Israel would not hear. And one of the things I encourage you to do is take a look at those passages and judge for yourself if there's a parallel with uh, with uh, the northern kingdom and America. But uh, let's get on to Second uh, Kings 15. Let's shift again to the southern kingdom, talk about Azariah. The 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, began Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, to reign. Sixteen years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned two and fifty years in Jerusalem. Wow, started young, but lasted quite a while. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. So he reigned a total of 52 years, and uh, that's the longest reign of any uh, king of, uh, of Judah or Israel to that time. And uh, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaz- Amaziah had done, save that the high places were not removed. Here it is again. He, he does really well, except he doesn't go quite far enough. Uh, the high places were not removed. The people sacrificed and burnt incense still on the high places. See, the problem isn't just that they're, they're worshiping God in Jerusalem, but they're also worshiping. See, that's the problem we all have, by the way. This all sounds so remote. It's ancient history, whatever. Let's be careful. Because they're worshiping God on the one hand, but they're worshiping a lot of other things too. And one of the things this should call us to do is to examine our lives carefully. Are we, are, are we allowing anything else to, to, to uh, eclipse God in our priorities? Are there other little things we do that are sort of, well, you know, winked at? No, God is very serious. Takes himself very seriously and expects us to take him seriously. Okay, verse 5. And the Lord smote the, and the Lord smote the king so that he was a leper unto the day of his death and dwelt in a several house, a separate house. And Jotham the king's son was over the house judging the people of the land. So there's an overlap here again. And see, he, uh, uh, what's not recorded here, you have to piece some of this in from Second Chronicles, the parallel passages about chapter 26. Um, he, uh, he, he's getting very proud and he intrudes on the priest's office. You may recall that God went to great lengths to keep the royal line and the religious line separate. The royal line was the tribe of Judah, and the priestly line was from the tribe of Levi. They're supposed to be separate. The Levitical priesthood, the Mosaic priesthood, is separate from the royal line of the Messiah. It gets united in the Messiah. There's only there's only... Three places in the scripture where we have a king and a priest in the same person. Melchizedek, just a verse or two in Genesis 14, which would go into obscurity if it wasn't for Psalm 110 and some other allusions, and an elaboration in the, in the epistle of Hebrews. The, the priesthood of Melchizedek is different. It's, remember, Melchizedek is one that Abraham gave tithes to. And the writer of Hebrews makes the point that when Abraham's giving tithes to Melchizedek, Levi is still in his loins. In fact, several generations later, out of you follow me. So that the, argue, the rabbinical argument is that that makes Melchizedek senior or more higher than the Aaron or the Mosaic uh, thing in general and, and the priesthood specifically. But they're united in the Messiah. So there's three places we have: Melchizedek was a king and a priest. The Messiah was a king and a priest, and will be, continue to be. 
And who else? Got uh, Melchizedek and Messiah. Anyone? Jesus. Jesus? Yes, of course. I'm assuming the Messiah, Jesus. The believers in Christ. Yeah, the church. The ecclesia. We need to understand the uniqueness of the ecclesia. Not all people saved are in the ecclesia. You need to do your homework. It's very important. But clearly, the kings and priests. Peter uses that expression of us as believers. And the 24 elders in Revelation, the identity of them is very critical in understanding what's going on there. So anyway, uh, the point is, is that Amaziah intrudes upon the priest's office. And for that, God strikes him as a leper. And uh, it must have broken Isaiah's heart when he died because Isaiah was afraid that Azariah's um, successors would lead the nation back into idolatry. And uh, so Azariah became a leper in about 750 B.C. So he shared the throne with his son as co-regent until he died, and his son takes over. So, so Azariah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Jotham the son reigned in his stead. In the 38th year, Azariah the king of Judah did Zechariah the son of Jeroboam reign over Israel. It's in the north now, in Samaria. Uh, and he, he reigned uh, uh, how long? Six months. Big deal, huh? Before we leave Azariah, I might mention he was probably one of Judah's most uh, effective and influential kings in Judah. He expanded the territories outward to Elath. Uh, he fortified Jerusalem and other parts of Judah. And the combined territories of Azariah in the, in the south and Jeroboam in the north approximated those of David and Solomon, just to give you a perspective. But unfortunately, he became proud and, of course, uh, had this leper thing, and he's then humbled by God. So we have Zechariah, who's going to reign all of six months. That's a rather short interlude. And Zechariah did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. And Shalom, the son of Jabesh, uh, uh, he's, he's going to be assassinated publicly by Shalom. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and smote him before the people and slew him and reigned in his stead. And all the rest of the acts of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles, kings of Israel. So that takes care of that dude, for, for, for at least for, for this study. But I get to, uh, this was the word of the Lord, which he spake unto Jehu, saying, this is a throwback, Thy son shall sit on the throne of Israel unto the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. See, when Zechariah dies, Israel, the northern kingdom's fifth dynasty came to an end. This ends the Jehu dynasty. He had four generations God had committed to him. That's it. So God, that was predicted back there in chapter 10, verse 30, if you want to, you know, track that all down. So Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the ninth and thirtieth year of Uzziah, the king of Judah. And he reigned, guess how long? A full month. Oh, this is, see, it's a, it's a, it's a turbulent, bloody, um, place of intrigue and assassinations. The northern kingdom, uh, that go, when you get into idolatry, all the rest of that, all that, uh, violence accompanies it. So Manaheim, the son of Gadi, came, went up from Terza and came to Samaria and smote Shalom, the son of Jabesh in Samaria, and slew him and reigned in his stead. Now we know from Josephus, apparently, that Manahim was the commander and chief of Jeroboam II's army. He was stationed in Terza, the former, it was the former capital of Israel, you may recall, back in the first Kings 15 and following. And he probably regarded Shalom as usurper, of course, and he believed that he as a commander of the army should succeed Zechariah. That was his, uh, you know, logical Conclusion. And the rest, he reigned, for, he reigned for about a month. And the rest of the acts of Shalom and his conspiracy, which he made, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of Israel. And Manham wrote to, Tur- uh, to uh, Tifsa and all that were therein and the coast thereof from Terza 
because they opened not to him, therefore he smote it, and all the women therein that were with child he ripped up. Now, um, the, uh, they didn't acknowledge him as king, so he explained it to, tried to explain it to them a little more clearly. He apparently was intending to intimidate not other Israelite, Israelite towns into supporting him by these rather open atrocities. In the ninth and thirtieth year of Azariah, the king of Judah began Menahem, the son of Gadi, to reign over Israel, and he reigned ten years in Samaria. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, departed not all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. Notice how they always reflect back to the first Jeroboam when they make those remarks, again and again, all through here. And in verse 19, and Paul, as it's labeled here, and Paul, the king of Assyria, came against the land. This is probably Tiglath-Pileser III. And uh, he's the very, he's, we identify him from the Assyrian inscriptions. And, uh, and we get, it helps to unscramble some of the, the uh, chronology. And this is, by the way, the first mention of Assyria in 2 Kings. And Paul here, as he's called here in the Bible, is one of Assyria's strongest rulers. And uh, he came against the land, met him, gave Paul a thousand talents of silver, and his hand, that his hand might be with him to confirm the kingdom in his hand. So he tries to buy his way into this thing. Uh, about a thousand talents, about 37 tons of silver he raised from the wealthy men of Israel. And uh, the Assyrian king gave him uh, support. As, it, as he bought some support here. He exacted the money of Israel, uh, even all the mighty men of wealth of each man, 50 shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and stayed not there in the land. The rest of the acts of Menahem are, uh, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And uh, Menahem slept with his fathers in Pekahiah. His son reigned in his stead. In the 50th year of Azariah, the king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned two years. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He parted not from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. I, I, I have tried to stand back from trying to worry too much about the chronology. It's a complicated skein. And that's not really the issue. The real issue is to understand the, the spiritual thread here. It's, and they're going from bad to worse as we go forward here. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Musler, teaching through the book of 2 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.